0: Welcome to Episode 9 of the TTM Academy podcast. I'm your co-host, Philippe Tran, and I'm here today with Dr. Ben Abella, Editor-in-Chief of the TTM Academy and Director of the Center for Resuscitation Science here at University of Pennsylvania. The TTM Academy is a comprehensive educational platform developed by the Center of Resuscitation Science at University of Pennsylvania to provide training in all aspects of post-cardiac arrest care, including targeted temperature management, or TTM. You can check us out at penttm.com where you can find all episodes of this podcast and much more, including online training courses, live courses, and workshops. You can also follow us on Twitter at PennTTM, where you can send us your questions or ideas for future topics you would like us to discuss here. So today, we're going to be discussing the role of imaging, neuroimaging in arrest care, specifically MRI. So, magnetic resonance imaging, MRI of the brain, including diffusion weighted imaging, or DYI, has been reported to have very high prognostic accuracy in the assessment of patients that are unconscious post cardiac arrest. So, we're going to be looking at a study that determined the value of MRI findings in the brain in both conscious and unconscious patients post cardiac arrest that were treated with targeted temperature management, or TTM at 32 to 34 degrees Celsius for a period of 24 hours, as well as the relation with patients neurological outcome after six months. This is a prospective observational study looking at MRI findings, and it was conducted by a team in Sweden. So
1: Ben, why don't you tell us about the study? Thank you, Felipe, and I'm glad to be back on this, the ninth podcast from the TTM Academy. The issue of imaging after cardiac arrest is an important one, and I think before we launch into the study, I'd like to give a little uh, context for why this is an important question. Those of you who are listening who are clinicians are well aware of the fundamental problem that after resuscitation from cardiac arrest, patients are comatose for several days, they're poorly responsive, and we as clinicians, and certainly the families of these patients, want to know, will my loved one recover? What is the prognosis? Because in the first few days of critical care following cardiac arrest, the prognosis is not so evident. It's not so clear. These patients are sedated. Sometimes they're paralyzed. Uh, They are suffering anoxic encephalopathy, from which they are often not waking up immediately. And so it's not clear. And this sort of prognostic information is therefore really crucial. In many ways, neuroprognostication several days following cardiac arrest is one of the key questions in the whole field. And so, this is an important one. And over the years, a number of investigative teams have tried numerous approaches to answering this question. One is simply using biomarkers or serologic blood markers for this. For example, nerve specific enolase or NSE is a brain cellular marker. When neurons are injured, it releases NSE into the bloodstream, and you could theoretically measure that to look at the significance of brain injury. Other proteins have been looked at too, serum measurement of glial fibrillary acidic protein or GFAP is another blood marker. Well, it turns out the literature is full of studies that have looked at various blood markers. None of them have been terrific. None of them have been been excellent in discriminating those patients who will do well from those who don't. You will see the literature is full of studies that show statistical relationships between levels of various blood markers and outcome. But as a clinician, that's not what we need. We need something that has really good positive predictive value. That is to say, we don't want to be wrong. If there's an overlapping set of patients for whom it's not clear what their prognosis will be based on the blood marker, that blood marker is just not very useful. Other groups have looked at imaging, like CT imaging. As as you know, most patients fall in cardiac arrest get non-infused brain CTs, uh, often upon arrival in the emergency department. There has been some statistical relationship between findings of cerebral edema on initial CT and eventual outcome. But again, it's not great. It's not uh, useful at the N equals 1 clinical level. That is to say, if you have a patient in front of you, and you have their CT findings, you can't conclusively say that that CT can predict outcome. So we're left with this quandary, how to determine outcome. So that's the context. And this group out of Uppsala, Sweden, and I should also give a shout out to the nation of Sweden. We've had a lot of Swedish followers for our podcast program and we appreciate it. It's also worth mentioning that there are a number of resuscitation research groups in Sweden doing excellent work looking at neuroprognosis using uh, imaging as well as EEG and other modalities. So this group out of Uppsala, Sweden, uh, wanted to evaluate the role of MRI following cardiac arrest. Now, those of you who take care of these patients clinically have no fear. They're not talking about immediate MRI following resuscitation. You might shudder to think of the logistical complexity to take a critically ill patient immediately following arrest MRI. Rather, they were looking at an important clinically useful uh, use for this MRI, which is on days three to five. So here's the scenario. A patient has been resuscitated. They've stabilized out in the ICU. It's day three. They're not waking up appropriately or not waking up at all. And both you and the family are getting worried. This is the perfect time to take a very granular look at the brain and brain function. What has been less clear is what brain imaging modality or testing is optimal. So they wanted to look at patients who were resuscitated from cardiac arrest, who then went to MRI imaging on this window, days three through five following arrest. Most of these patients were still in the ICU at that time, but certainly they're more stable and a road trip is more tenable for these patients. And then they wanted to look at their outcomes. And this study looked at six-month outcomes. It's worth noting there have been prior studies looking at MRI as a neuroprognostic tool for cardiac arrest but they've largely uh, either been small cohort studies or they've only looked at functional outcome at discharge. We all know that discharge outcome is not the uh, ideal standard. Sometimes these things change over time following discharge. And so they looked at six-month CPCs, or cerebral performance categories. Those of you unfamiliar with that, CPC is scaled one to five. One is good neurologic function, and five is brain death. And it's been commonly used in cardiac rest studies to evaluate outcomes. So uh, historically, Although crude, CPC 1 and 2 are considered a quote-unquote good outcome. CPC 3 through 5 are quote-unquote bad outcome. And of course, uh, this is not very precise. This is not very detailed. But it's easily uh, done, and therefore, it allows for easy comparison between different studies. So this is what they did. And they had a very protocolized way to quantify MRIs. And this is important, and we'll get to it later when we discuss the ramifications of this paper. They looked at something called diffusion-weighted imaging, DWI, which had been reported in prior studies to have some prognostic value. And... DWI is basically a way to look at edema, and they had a more specific way of doing it than just that. They actually did a quantitative mapping of something called ADC, Apparent Diffusion Coefficient, ADC mapping, and what this allows them to do is basically make a map of the brain to look at intracellular edema or cellular swelling, which is well known to be a phenomena after ischemia reperfusion injury. Said another way, after cardiac rest and reperfusion, the brain swells, and this allows them to carefully quantify this brain swelling at a very precise regional level, much more so than CT could ever do. And they had a very careful protocol for this. This wasn't just looking at radiology reports, but rather was prospectively measured and quantified so that they could look at uh, each of these patients. Now, to tell you about who was enrolled in this study, these were adult post-cardiac arrest patients between 2008 and 2012. That's relevant because 2008 and 2012, while some time ago, is arguably very much in the modern era of TTM and post-arrest bundled care. So most hospitals um, today probably deliver very similar care to the patient's care delivered in those years. These are all patients who were treated with targeted temperature management or whole body cooling and temperature control after cardiac arrest. All these patients received MRI between days three and five. They had T1 and T2 imaging obtained, so it allowed them to perform this DWI and EDC mapping. And the maps were generated for each patient. Now, in this cohort, there were 57 patients who had post-rest MRIs. 46 were performed within that day three to five window. Two-thirds of their patients were out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and one-third were in-hospital. So it's important to note that they included both out-of-hospital and in-hospital arrest patients in this. Now, you might worry that the in-hospital arrest patients were very sick, had a lot of other problems, but remember, all these patients had to survive to at least day three. So that immediately is biasing in a useful way towards patients who are likely to live, and so prognosis is important. Many very sick in-hospital arrest patients who may have had their arrest from hypoxic ischemic respiratory failure, overwhelming sepsis, other problems, they typically don't make it to day three. Uh, So these are patients for whom they felt there was a really good chance that these patients could survive. In many other ways, the cohort was very consistent with other cardiac arrest cohorts that many of you listeners may see at your hospitals. The mean age was 68, fairly typical for cardiac arrest cohorts. About 56% had bystander CPR, and about 40% were shockable rhythms. All of those are fairly typical for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest cohorts. About half of all the patients in the cohort were discharged with a quote-unquote good neurologic outcome, that is to say, CPC 1 or 2. And again, this is fairly common for high-performing hospitals that patients who get their pulse back about half survive with good neurologic outcome. At least in the era of TTM and bundled post-dress care, that's fairly common to have those sorts of numbers. If your survival numbers are much less than that, you may want to think harder about what you can do to improve your TTM quality of care at your hospital. Now let's talk about the results from this cohort. First and perhaps most importantly, they found that the majority of patients, 57%, had identifiable lesions that could be attributed to hypoxic ischemic injury. Said another way, when you look really carefully at the brain, you're going to find stuff. And in this case, they found a lot of lesions. So this is why protocolized imaging and protocolized analysis is important. Lesions did not mean outcome. Lesions just meant lesions on an MRI. In point of fact, 38% of patients who had good outcomes at six months, that is to say functional CPC one or two at six months, had visible and measurable hypoxic ischemic lesions of cerebral edema on the brain. So just because you had areas of the brain with cerebral edema and hypoxic ischemic injury did not mean you were going to have a bad outcome. You might have a good outcome. So it's not enough just to say the brain doesn't look normal. Now, most of these lesions were in gray matter not so much in the white matter of the brain. And they found that there was a general association that lesions in the occipital lobe, temporal lobes, or basal ganglia had worse outcomes than those in the frontal lobes. Again, more generally speaking to the fact that this is a complicated business. The brain is not homogenous, and the location of brain injury can vary considerably from patient to patient for reasons that we don't totally understand. But the bottom line is not all patients had lesions in the same place. Now, they also found that some people have very large lesions, quantified simply by size. If a hypoxic ischemic injury lesion on MRI was larger than 5 centimeters, none of those patients survived. So now we're starting to get somewhere. This is useful information. 10 out of 10 patients with large lesions all died. So, so again, MRI may not be perfect, but we're starting to get some signal when you quantify it as to ways you can usefully neuroprognosticate these patients. In general, they found that the higher the ADC value, the worse the ADC, that's this diffusion coefficient measurement, the worse the outcomes. But they had trouble finding a precise cutoff, so that will require larger cohorts and and more work. Another interesting finding is they looked at both patients who had consciousness or arousal at 48 hours versus those who did not. As many of you clinicians know, some patients wake up earlier or later, and we often feel that might have something to do with their eventual outcome. But it turns out that patients who had consciousness or arousal at 48 hours and had lesions also had worse outcomes. So just because you wake up promptly doesn't always mean you have a good outcome. So I caution clinicians out there to not put too much stock in earlier or later arousal. Some patients wake up later and do Well, some patients wake up earlier and still have significant neurologic disability. So time to arousal probably has a lot to do with sedation, liver and renal clearance of sedatives, paralytics, other factors beyond just the brain injury itself. So it's hard to make too much out of the fact that a patient shows some sign of arousal early or does not show signs of arousal earlier. Another important finding from the study, many of the patients had other lesions on MRI that were not specifically hypoxic ischemic injury lesions, such as small vessel disease, lacunar infarcts, other findings, and there was no correlation of those with outcome. Again, this really provides an important word of caution. You can't just get an MRI, have the radiologist tell you that there's all sorts of lesions, and make something of that. There's specific signatures of hypoxic ischemic injury lesions, namely Swelling, brain swelling, that's different from small lacunar infarcts or strokes that may be old news and they may be unrelated to their eventual outcome. So, what can we take from this? I think at best we can say that the role of MRI following cardiac rest is compelling and growing. We don't have all the answers yet, but I think this is going to be an important direction for the field to go. We need better prognostic tools and MRI in the days following cardiac rest, if patients make it to three or four days, I think is a really useful thing that hospitals should start to consider. Now, the authors agree with the limitations that it's the early stages of figuring out the role of MRI, and they make a plea that if others are going to do studies of MRI following cardiac rest, they should follow a standardized evaluation schematic so that we can make better comparisons. We shouldn't just rely on radiologist reports. We should be Being able to compare apples to apples so that we can build a database. And I envision a world in the next few years where we have maybe a meta-analysis of hundreds and hundreds of MRIs, or maybe even a registry, for those of you interested in developing such a tool, a registry of post-rest MRI to start coming up with better discriminating features to make a good prognostic tool out of this. So we need a larger cohort. But I think at at a very clinical and practical level, it's also important to note that early arousal does not mean you're going to be neurologically fine. Uh, This MRI study shows that. Another uh, very important point on this is, conversely, if you have a clean MRI, but you're still unconscious at 48 hours, 50% of those patients in the study had a CPC1 outcome. So let me rephrase that because this is important. If a patient is not waking up at 48 hours and you order an MRI and the MRI is clean, that is to say there are no hypoxic ischemic lesions on day three or four or five, they have a 50% chance of an excellent outcome, 50% chance of CPC-1. That's a very high chance of a good outcome, 50% of CPC-1. And so that of course is not 100% it's not definitive but what a useful thing that would be to tell a family member or the hospital that is considering maybe withdrawing care to say hey you know there's a good chance this patient could do well because of MRI evidence this also underscores i think one of the most fundamental important things to convey to clinicians early withdrawal following cardiac arrest is probably one of the biggest problems we face as a uh, medical system of care for patients following cardiac arrest. We just don't know on day two or three how patients will do, and the international guidelines are quite clear that we have to wait at least 72 hours at least following cardiac arrest to use any clinical bedside exam and make sense of their outcome. These are patients who are unconscious on day two and a 50% chance of CPC one. So I think if you have the capability of performing MRI in the days following cardiac rest, this paper will be of interest to you. I think, Those of us who care for these patients regularly should consider incorporating MRI for this subgroup of patients, those for whom there are still important clinical questions and have survived to at least day three. I don't think we can say this should become the standard of care quite yet. We need more studies. But this is a very interesting and important paper that I think will lend further fuel to the study of imaging for cardiac arrest prognosis.
0: Well, Ben, that's a very interesting paper, and I think this is a good time to wrap this up. This is Philippe Tran and Ben Abella for the TTM Academy podcast, signing out.